0: so can you t- can you tell me who you are and what we're going to do
1: yeah sure my name is Carolyn Kendrick I am a musician a fiddle player and a uh, singer and a songwriter and and a, you know I guess I technically play guitar too and we are on our way number one to go pick up my keys to my new apartment and then go to Target to pick up things for that apartment. Am I going left?
0: Uh, No, right, right, right You are listening to Nashville Demystified. My name is Alex Steed. I'm new to this city, and I'm using producing this show as an excuse to get to know it better. In each episode, I talk with someone who hasn't been here for all that long about a subject that I'm going to look into further. Then I talk with someone who has been here for a bit longer, and presumably an expert in that subject. You are so new to the city. Yes. That you haven't even picked up your keys to your apartment yet.
1: Yes. I am yeah, I'm yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
0: oh, how so how, tell me a bit about your history in Nashville and why you're here.
1: So, um so I've been I've spent a fair amount of time in Nashville before I decided to move here. I, I you know I had some family that lived around the area like in, in Brentwood and so we'd come and see them every you know every blue moon but not close family by any means. And then um, yeah and then in high, high school and in college I did a, some recording sessions out here for different bands and then once I was in college, which I went, I went to school in Boston and a lot of my friends, from school started moving down here because of you know because of the music scene and so I started coming here more and more just to visit friends and be part of the scene and yeah.
0: Are you admitting that you went to Berkeley for a reason?
1: Oh no I just didn't I feel like I feel like there's like such a weird I guess maybe there is a reason I think it was just like so conscious uh, <laughs> like I like people people can either be like People can be weird about Berkeley, myself included, because sometimes when you say you go to Berkeley, there's like there's like an aura around that. Some people are like, "Wow," and then some people are like, "Oh, gross. You spent all this money to like go into a field that you could have done that without spending money." And there's there's like, you know, there's like a lot of a, there's a lot of feelings around Berkeley, and I think especially around like yeah, yeah, there's a lot of feelings around Berkeley, so I guess I tr- I try to like kind of not omit it, but like glaze over it.
0: <laughs> Nashville Demystified is produced by Knack Factory and distributed by the We Own This Town Network. You can find a transcript and more details about this episode at NashvilleDemystified.com. Today, we're talking about John Hartford. I chose John Hartford to kick this show off because he's a lot of things to a lot of people. With all due respect, like so many of my favorite people here, he's not only a musician, but he was a weird music nerd. He also helped to shift the paradigm on what was possible in the realm of bluegrass and old-time music. He was a writer for the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, which is awesome. He wrote Gentle on My Mind, which became one of the most covered songs in history, for which Hartford won several Grammys. He played on the Bird Sweetheart of the Radio, also awesome. <laughs> Later in his career, he earned a Grammy for his instrumental recording of Man of Constant Sorrow for the O oh Brother, The Soundtrack. And he died, unfortunately, in 2001 of complications from non-Hodgkin lymphoma at the age of 61.
1: Oh, are we recording this? <laughs> It's like what every podcast says, right? Yeah, okay, exactly. we're doing this right now. Oh, it's on! Oh, everybody's listening to me! Oh my god! Right right, right. <laughs>
0: now, now when you hear it, people will know it's a podcast. Yeah,
1: people don't know it's a podcast until you hear like the you know how um, you know the beginning of Radio Lab is like, right. oh, here we go. <laughs> right, it's the the, the um,
0: you know I heard. With Andrew W.K. years and years ago, he said, I spent thousands of hours making music that sounds like I didn't spend thousands of hours making. Right, totally. Exactly. And yeah, and that's what uh, Radio Lab perfected in the podcast arena.
1: Yeah, totally, absolutely. Uh, I think that's funny that you say that because, like, circling back to what what I was, like, skirting around with Berkeley, so, like, I had such a positive experience there, but people, like, people are like, I spent thousands of dollars to seem like. Like not even like I spent tens of thousands of dollars to sound like I just naturally like picked up a guitar and like it was amazing. <laughs> oh
0: yeah, well I mean you think that that's bad? I'm a 35 year old man, 10 years after podcasts got popular, <laughs> asking people if I can interview them for my podcast. Yeah, totally. That's that's <laughs> like your embarrassment is around something with prestige.
1: Yeah, I, I guess. I guess. Um, we're gonna take exit 12.
0: This is actually the first in a two-part episode, which became apparently necessary after I was able to have rich conversations with both Hartford's friend, Matt Combs, and Hartford's daughter, Katie. Hartford's a bit of a bold choice to start with when it comes to diving into the city history, as he was born in New York City, he spent his childhood in St. Louis, and he lived in Madison, which is northeast of Nashville. But he was very much a product of the city, having looked to the Opry and Earl Scruggs as a deep influence when he was growing up. And later in his life, he would be considered a co-founder of what would be known as the quote, Newgrass movement. But more on that in a bit. Carolyn and I parked ourselves in a Goodwill parking lot, and she told me what Hartford meant to her. What does John Hartford mean to you as a musician? I know that you have stronger feelings about him than some.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, so as a musician, John Hartford is incredibly important in the community that I am in or a part of, which is like the bluegrass and old-time community. And he's really important because he's, at least from... Uh, At least from what I know and my perspective, he seems to be, like, a real, uh, like, historian and also, uh, he's, like, he's, like, carrying tradition in a way that is not, um, like, the traditional ways that people try to carry tradition, which is really interesting to me musically in the sense that he's, like putting forward and like learning about all of these like great tunes and great you know things that are happening within the old time and bluegrass cultures but then like not not being bound to those and he just like does his own thing around not even around but like in conjunction with with that tradition and like he really brought it to a new place but like John's music is just so so meaningful for so many people and at least for myself like it's just so it's, I don't even, it's like almost inexplicable. Like you kind of just have to experience it. You have to like be immersed in it and it's, you know, it can be so like deep and joyful and funny. Like he's one of the funniest writers and players that I've ever really listened to. Um, yeah, meaningful and, um, I think each person, it's always interesting talking to other like string players because I feel like you get to know other people better by like hearing like what like era of Hartford or what their favorite Hartford song is. And like you can kind of like get a lens lens into like people's values because of what they think of Hartford, you know, and um, it's really because he his music spanned so many decades and so many like kinds of emotions and you know so many phases of how modern string band music like came to be you know Mm. I mean I think this goes for like a lot of musicians that I look up to that I don't tend and it's it's not necessarily I don't know if it's negative or positive but I don't tend to learn much about the people that they are like I tend to focus more on the music that they produce and the music that they're around and so really up until you know the last couple years I would just like dive headfirst into records and not really learn anything about you know the man John Hartford and really it's only been I mean I've only been here for a little bit but since getting here into Nashville and learning learning you know learning more about who he is as a person and then also since The book came out about his archives that, you know, Matt and his daughter put together. Like, I've learned a little bit more about him through that. And then also just because there's, um, you know, like, lore around him. People are always telling Hartford stories and things like that. But I I feel much less equipped to talk about who he is as a person then but and i think that's almost a defense mechanism you know because not specific to him but just learning about your heroes in general like you know when they're your heroes in your brain like they can do no wrong and then like you you know when you learn about who they are as people because all people are fallible like you're like oh i don't want to learn too much or lest i be like disappointed i suppose (laughs) you know like yeah absolutely like Michael Jackson is a perfect example there's a you Michael know? Jackson
0: there's a Michael Jackson uh, so I mean two things come up in these interviews one is that um, we learn a bit about uh, Hartford from the perspective of his daughter which is yeah. I feel like is a really a Katie who's mm-hmm. a very interesting and intimate perspective mm-hmm. on on an artist um, and then the other is that um, my favorite anecdote I don't want to give it away because it's so good when it happens but mm-hmm. um, there's a Michael Jackson anecdote. Yeah. Uh, that is wholesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in, in, in the interview with Katie. So okay. I'm, I'm excited about that, which I think is yeah. in the next episode you're introducing Matt's.
1: Okay. Okay. Uh,
0: the interview with Matt Combs, which we're do which we're introducing now, um, talks about Hartford as, as an individual, Matt, Matt, came here in his early 20s mm-hmm. and became friendly uh, friendly with Hartford and and started playing with him and recording with him and recording with uh, the, his group of friends and group of peers. Mm-hmm. So Matts talks much more about him as a musician but also the cultural phenomenon of the shift to quote-unquote new grass and yeah. the the part, the part that Hartford played in that. Mm-hmm. And then Katie talks about him as a as a person and as her as her father. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going to be in the next episode. Okay. Um, that's like I'm telling the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> but like it's weird because you're like, what do I say now? Right, totally. <laughs> let's, uh, let's go to Goodwill. Yeah. Which we're in the parking lot of right now and find you some old stuff.
1: Yeah, I'm going to look for a bookcase.
0: <laughs> now I'd meant for this episode to be a primer on Hartford, but after talking with Matt Combs, and Hartford's daughter, Katie Hartford-Hogue, who you'll hear in the next episode, it became evident that things were going to get a bit deeper. Matt is himself many things, having been a staff fiddler and mandolinist for the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, He's been nominated for a Grammy, toured with legends like Reba McIntyre, and played with the Nashville Symphony Orchestra. Uh, Matt arrived in Nashville in 1997 and quickly struck up a rich friendship with Hartford, and he literally wrote the book on him, or at least he helped organize and arrange it. John Hartford's mammoth collection of fiddle tunes was sourced from Hartford's journals and compiled by Matt and Katie along with Greg Reich. It's available at johnhartford.com. And I don't just say this because I'm talking to these folks on the show. This is a beautiful book uh, comprised of amazing fiddle tunes, but also uh, stories, anecdotes, lyrics, um, and drawings by Hartford. It's, it, it's really incredibly special. Now, I met Matt out at his house in a freshly constructed studio in Kingston Springs, which is a bit west of town. When I arrived, he was sitting with his newborn daughter and watching a family of deer eat about 20 feet from the house. In our conversation, Matt talks about his arrival to the city in the 90s, meeting Hartford and the collective of first-generation bluegrass characters uh, who were still around then and The emergence of what would eventually be known as the Newgrass Movement and how the old guard responded to that. There's an amazing anecdote uh, about this. Uh, Matt does an incredible impression, and I hope that you hear it and enjoy it as much as I did. But first, if you could, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Consider giving a review if you can, sharing with a friend. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Nashville Demystified and we're on the garbage fire that is Facebook these days. (laughs) Remember when we thought it was going to change everything for the better to be connected all the time? Uh, maybe you didn't, maybe you thought better of it. Um, if you have any feedback and you want to send it to me directly, or if you have ideas for future shows, you can reach me at podcast at knackfactory.com. Actually it's podcast at knack-factory.com so that's k-n-a-c-k-factory.com so just a quick note about music in this episode, none of it is by John Hartford. Uh, getting the rights from major labels to use his music is both uh, tricky and expensive. So I use a lot of old time music uh, in the background uh, throughout this episode, throughout any time that you hear me talking in, in various transitions. This is all old time music. It's old enough to be in the public domain. And anytime you hear Matt or Carolyn talk about old time, this is what they're talking about. Carolyn has done a good deal of uh, work archiving and researching in this area so she knew a lot of tracks to point out to me and I have a list of the tracks that are used in this episode on the website so if you're interested in hearing or finding out more or getting links to where uh, you can go down an old-time rabbit hole as it were uh, check out the website. So uh, without further ado here is Matt. It's funny, like, um, I'm from, from Portland, Maine, and I had, uh, now, and I've only been here for six weeks, but now anytime anyone from Maine is here, they let me know that they're here (laughs) (laughs) and they complain about, uh, Nashville because they came and they visited for Uh like a professional thing or something like that. And then uh, you know, like any time you go to you you go to another city for work. Well, you're you're in a different line of work than a lot of these people I'm talking about. But mm-hmm. you know, they you end up getting put up downtown, you know. And and if you don't venture anywhere else, and you're just stuck in a in a city's downtown, um, it's going to be a terrible situation for you. Hey,
2: yeah. it can be if you're not into. <laughs> Uh, pedal taverns and, you know, <laughs> yeah. that nightmare that's happening down there.
0: Yeah, and I think also, like, it was like, m- like, March Madness, was, you know? Was happening. Oh, right, so they, they, yeah. didn't, they weren't, like, a, a couple of people were just taken aback, like, they had no idea what was going on. It's
2: insane down there. <laughs> it really is. Like, I don't go downtown anymore unless I'm working, but I was working downtown with the symphony a while, a few couple months ago, playing the mandolin with the symphony, and so I was walking out of the concert hall at, you know, 10 p.m. Saturday night, and it was a complete and utter madhouse. Had yeah. this guy try to fight me? I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, I yeah. don't know.
0: That was my first. My, my my I hadn't been. I hadn't been to the city um, for about ten years before I came back a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And my, fr- yeah, that was exactly my first experience back. Was I was just trying to walk back to a hotel. And some dude just tried to fight me.
2: <laughs> wow! What, what are we putting off? Some sort of like fight me energy? I don't know.
0: We're tall guys, you know. Yeah, it's the, they want to take it. us
2: down first in the prison. Hey, room. maybe we'll fight at the end of the podcast.
0: <laughs> that's how this comes together. Winner,
2: yeah, winner takes all.
0: Um, how how did you end up in Nashville?
2: Um, well, in '97, I graduated from college up at University of Michigan mm. and uh, studying classical violin. But during my time there, I got into fiddle playing. Um, kind of via Aspen, Colorado. I went out there to study at a music festival, and they had street performers out there. And uh, there's this band in particular they were called Grits and Gravy. And this banjo and his wife played the washboard, and this guy was actually a, a balloon clown during the day and a banjo player at night. Is pretty. That's a double threat. <laughs> I think that's what they call that, right? The balloon clown banjo. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and his name is Jeep, Jeep the Clown. And so I, I'm not making this <laughs> stuff up. just getting better. <laughs> no, I'm, I couldn't make this stuff up if I tried. So I started hanging out with them. They lived in this 35-foot RV, and they traveled from Key West to Aspen every year, just busking all along the way. Key West, New Orleans, Aspen, um, and then on back and kind of made the circle. So I'd hang out with them in their RV, and um, they played me the first kind of snippet I heard where the... Fiddle was taken, or the violin in my mind at the time was taken into a different category. It was Baila Flex Drive Record hmm. and Strength and Numbers Record. So, the, and those both have so like Stuart Duncan's on Drive and Mark O'Connor's on uh, Strength and Numbers and Drive. And so, but it was that mandolin, Sam Bush, Jerry Douglas Dobro, you know, Tony Rice on Drive. And I was just like, whoa, this is, um, it was very eye opening for me because. Um, you know, had I heard maybe old time music first at the time being a classical musician and into the polished thing of violin playing, maybe I wouldn't have been so turned on, but to hear the violin played at such a high level in the fiddle style was really eye-opening for me because they both have beautiful sound and, you know, can really play. So that was the first eye-opener. So I went back to Michigan and, um, after that first summer, and then I started studying about... Class or uh, bluegrass started getting into Bill Monroe, and then at that point, I started going back into history of the music. I started off in the new grass and then kind of started digging in at that point, you know, and then worked my way into old time. But uh, come graduation time, you know, I, I visited with a friend down here and uh, visited Mark Schatz, a bass player who played in the John Hartford string band, and um. Uh, and i was wondering where to move he's like well where, where do all the players live i was like uh, here <laughs> he's like well there you go i was like oh yeah okay so i packed up a u-haul and uh me and a buddy we literally drove the u-haul down to the station inn because we didn't have any place to go i didn't know anybody and and uh, ralph stanley and the clinch mountain boys were down there the station Inn playing so we just drove down there hung out at the station Inn, and drove around the next day and found a shitty apartment and <laughs> you know what they say about the rest
0: <laughs> and what did you what did you enjoy about being here for those first couple of years
2: um well, I had a really unique it was a really unique time because all the first generation bluegrass guys were still living and active so um I kind of had the dumb luck of uh going to the Wilson county fiddle contest in wilson county fair and um it was right after I moved here. Um, so I went down there just to see what was going on. I entered the fiddle contest and, uh, but I met a guy named Fraser Moss who, who was old at the time. He was like 86 or so when I met him, but he was at the fiddle contest. And, um, and so we just hit it off like right off the bat. He was just a cool old man and, and funny. And, um, so we started hanging out. And uh, he was a legendary fiddler from the Middle Tennessee area. They called him the Dean of the Tennessee Fiddlers. Hmm. And, uh, I mean, he had tie-ins from, you know, the old Opry days, like Uncle Day Macon and that kind of stuff. So he was like a tie-in to like the old, you know, the old guard. So Frazier introduced me to Hartford, though, because he, uh, John, was a big fan of Frazier's over the years and had played with Frasier and they had made some recordings and hung out you know, just lots of jam sessions. And, uh, so Frazier took me over to John's house for the first time to meet, to meet John and hang out and play. And, um, that was kind of the beginning of getting tied in with the first generation guys. Cause then I met John's guitar player at the time, Chris Sharp, and he's my age. So we, we hung out and got to be running buddies and, Um, so we go hang out at John's and, you know, eat dinner and pick and, and then, uh, you know, John was friends with, you know, everybody. So I got to know Benny Martin through John and, uh, got to be good buddies with Benny and Kenny Baker through Chris Sharp and got to know him and uncle Josh Graves and Earl Scruggs and, uh, you know, bashful brother Oswald from Roy Acuff's band and, um, so there's just a, and this is all up in Madison, mm-hmm. Tennessee. All these guys lived in Madison. That was kind of the, that's where all the hillbilly musicians lived, was mm-hmm. was up there. Starting in the 60s, everybody moved up there. Um, it was kind of a, the hot place to be for musicians uh, in the 60s. And it stayed that way. Earl lived up there until um, we actually helped him move, me and some buddies, helped him move some stuff out of his house on Donna up in Madison to now, and then he lived, moved down to George and Tammy's old place down on Franklin Pike. So (laughs) it's just kind of really modern white house with like stark white carpet and like kind of a funny.
0: Anytime I go to like an antique store and I see like a white couch, I'm like, I wonder if this came from
2: George and Tammy. (laughs) Probably (laughs) it it, it would would have matched the carpet, you know,
0: exactly. It must be like 40% of like really nice sort of white leather you can find. Yeah. Right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. But uh, but that was the that was the scene was you know, all those old cats were still around. Uh, yeah, it was just a cool time, you know. It yeah. was really and, and John's house was the epicenter of of jam sessions. Why was that? Because John was compulsively playing and wanted people over there all the time. Yeah, and you know wanted to play all the time. wanted wanted to hang out. Wanted to pick. Um, so he just, and he had a great spot for it. In fact, one night we were, or one day I'd gone over, you know, I don't know, maybe 10 or 11 in the morning and, uh, you know, we'd played for a little bit and then ate some ate some dinner. And, uh, and then Larry Perkins, who was a, oh, another Madison guy, Larry Perkins, he lived in Earl's uh, little house there on, uh, oh, I can't think of the, not Gibson, but. It's over behind the firehouse over there and uh, it's not coming to me. But at any rate, Larry invited us over for a jam session and John said, well, if we play our cards right, we can play all day and all through the night. (laughs) You know? So, I mean, dude was obsessed with playing. It's like he, you know, it's like he literally like couldn't stop and wouldn't stop because he was just so passionate about it. You know, he had such incredible output and incredible desire to just to keep it going, you know. When John first started, uh, he got a major label record deal with RCA Records, and uh, and so he was kind of like RCA's answer to Bob Dylan at mm. the time. He was uh, kind of a hippie. You know, he, he sang these songs. If you listen to the first Felton Jarvis-produced RCA records, it's like they're very heavily produced, you know, definitely in the commercial... Um, Vein and um, they're a little more like uh, they're word movies. He called them word movies. So he w- it wasn't like Hillbilly, you know. Although it had, he played the banjo on them, um, it was more pop oriented and more folky, you know. So it wanted to be their version. Columbia had Dylan, so they wanted John to kind of be the answer to that. Um, now that was in the late 60s. And then, um, well, it all started with a song. Gentle on My Mind. And John wrote that in 1967 after having gone to see Dr. Zhivago in the movie theater. And it's somehow inspired from Laura's theme from from Zhivago. So he came home uh, to their little trailer, he and Betty, his wife at the time. And he wrote, or uh, apartment, I forget. But he wrote Gentle on My Mind. And do yourself a favor, if you haven't heard it, check out Gentle on My Mind. It is like the number three or four most recorded song in, in the history, like behind yesterday from Paul mm-hmm. McCartney. So, like Elvis cut it, Aretha cut it, uh, you know, everyone, you know, like over you know, a thousand artists or something like that. I don't know how many, but a bunch. So, right off the bat, John did really well financially and he got big awards. So, that started him off. You know, he wrote this. Well, uh, he pitched it to Glenn Campbell first. You know, Glenn Campbell was the first guy to cut gentle on my mind so it was a song and then you know john was on the glenn campbell show he would stand up at the beginning and play his banjo and be a sideman kind of for for glenn campbell and and then he was a writer out in la for the smothers brothers show Hmm. and so he had this like hollywood la thing and then he got kind of tired of that and then came around 1971 um he started getting freaky Uh, growing his beard out and he moved back to Nashville and he made the Aerial Plane record. So he was hanging out with Norman Blake, Vasha Clements, Tut Taylor, um, you know, and Randy Scruggs played electric bass on that record. So then he, that, although considered a commercial flop, which is weird, um, but like RCA didn't know what to do with it because it was such a weird record. You know, it's like they, um,
0: You're right. Even that. Co- I mean, even just like right down to the cover. It's like, what would you do? Yeah, right. A
2: guy with scruffy-looking hippie with goggles on, and you know, it's like, uh, just smoking smoking pot during you know everybody was smoking pot, and you know, so John shifted at that point from kind of this product, this LA slicker product, into funky hippie John, um, and, uh, but that was like. The beginning of what you know, and we now kind of realize is blue or newgrass. You mm-hmm. know, so guys like Sam Bush and and Bala and all that kind of. I mean, you can ask them; they would it would kind of start there, and then, you know, morph into what what they all did with it.
0: Can um, you can you just say just for for someone who's listening is not familiar, like what can you just contra- con- compare and contrast to like bluegrass and newgrass, like what was that tra- what did that transition mean both like musically and maybe culturally
2: Yeah uh well bluegrass was invented by a guy named Bill Monroe uh, a proud Kentucky mandolin player country you know he grew up working hard in the fields you know from a different era um he was an o- an older gentleman i forget you know born in what i don't know 1915 maybe mm. i don't know exactly but around that era but so he grew up in rural Kentucky, and, and uh, in the Depression, and, and you know, so he started bluegrass music, and uh, you know, auditioned for the Grand Ole Opry in 1939, and started there, and you know, stayed there. They said if uh, if you ever leave, you're gonna have to fire yourself. They loved Bill Monroe, you know. That was they said at his audition. Um, so Bill created this music essentially, you know, with Earl Scruggs' three-finger style banjo. This is in 1946 when Earl came into the band. Three-finger style banjo, chubby wise on the fiddle, real bluesy Florida fiddle player, Lester Flat singing guitar, singing and playing guitar, and Cedric Rainwater on the bass. That was the epicenter of, you know, that's what became bluegrass. They didn't call it bluegrass at the time. It was just another form of country music. It was actually, it was Bill Monroe and his bluegrass boys. Mm-hmm. So because of the moniker, you know, the bluegrass state, Kentucky's a bluegrass state. That's how it kind of morphed, you know. They say, "Hey, play some of that bluegrass music." Mm. You know, so that's how bluegrass got its name, but you know, they started uh writing uh more stuff like John came in and, you know, re- write some I don't know, a little more weird uh <laughs> I guess is the word, you know, just it was just a product of the time, you know, the late 60s, you know, the 70s, it's like you know, a little bit of the dope culture coming in and like uh and I think that had an effect on it and um you know, just people just breaking the mold a little bit, you know, using the same instruments of of mandolin and banjo and fiddle, but then it just changed. It's just a little bit different. Um
0: Right. And I by no means do I mean this to define the, the, the two sort of eras, but like did John have any songs about murdering women? <laughs>
2: because I mean, there were a whole lot <laughs> I tell you before you know bluegrass was uh was uh not known for its uh, kindness <laughs> towards women yeah i don't know i mean there's it's really kind of a screwy bunch of guys Yeah. yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, the 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 fathers of bluegrass music you know i mean it all feels like a Coen brothers movie a little bit it, yeah yeah i mean it's they they all were highly dysfunctional people mm-hmm. You know personally, hmm. they were obviously you know genius at what they do, but like you know, all those guys were complete wrecks. Personally, you know, Bill Monroe and God Jimmy Martin, and you hmm. know, it's like Lester Flat. I think you know, he held it together all right, but <laughs> I don't, you know, and Earl, you know, of course, Earl and Louise Scruggs, they they were pretty, pretty uh, they kept together the whole time, but I mean, Bill Monroe is the father of bluegrass music, and he was. He was messed up with women, man. Yeah. You know, it's like he really had a had a hard time with it. That was kind of his Achilles' heel. Um, so, yeah. But John read about different stuff. You know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, not to keep going back to drugs or anything, but I mean, just like they they said, "Granny, won't you smoke some marijuana?" You know, yeah. it's just like s- songs like that. And and are you holding? <laughs> you know, from Areo playing, and you know, talking about like you know, and on Mark Twang, it's like he's he's audibly smoking pot <laughs> yeah there's like
0: playful like sex songs and stuff and yeah it's not it's right. like, it's it's not um it, it's not very conservative
2: right it's it's definitely wide open to to whatever um and then you know it's just breaking the mold a little bit you know bill monroe had his thing and there's a famous story amongst the bluegrass folks that when sam bush his band was called the newgrass revival and had was it was originally uh, uh, Bela wasn't in it at the, at the onset it was uh, Courtney Johnson on the banjo um, and and uh, John Cowan and uh, and Sam and, and Pat Flynn I think was the original incarnation so Bill Monroe he had heard the Newgrass revival play he's like um uh, what do you call that music there? <laughs> and Sam said uh it's Newgrass, Bill he's like oh I hate that <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, Just took the
0: recorder down. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, right. <laughs> so yeah, I mean it's yeah.
2: oh, well how do you come back from that? You know, I hate that. And
0: that hasn't really gone away, right? Like there's a there's still still a little bit of attention, right, between.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean there's there's always like you got your camps you know you got your camps of folks and and i feel like that's sort of lessening a little bit now it's like when i first moved to town there's kind of more of staunch traditionalists like no you got to play it like play it like the father mm-hmm. you know and that that kind of mindset at times um with certain camps of people then you know then the the younger younger people came in and i just don't feel like there are as distinct boundaries you know people no, you know, I think younger players now sort of do it all. You know, it's like they appreciate traditional players, but then, you know, they'll also appreciate every, you know everything. Right. I think it's it's yeah. less less campy, you know. Yeah,
0: my I mean my entry, I went to a I went to a bluegrass festival when I was 15 that my girlfriend's at the time father played at and it was in Troy, New York, mm-hmm. and it was terrifying. <laughs> like, I was just like, I sh- should not be here. I don't know what's happening. A lot of these men are like angry in a way I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, it's bluegrass. Yeah, yeah t- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> angry men. Yeah, I was like, all right, cool. No. And then it wasn't until I started understanding the through line with like metal. Like with like with like heavy metal and like that sort of level of nerdery, and then I knew people who were into that and bluegrass, and I was like, "Oh, I get that. Like, I I Mm -hmm. understand
2: this." (laughs) There is there is a certain, I mean, with bluegrass in particular, there is that kind of edge to it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's it has from the inception there was uh, a competition in it. You know, whereas like I love old time music. But there, that isn't in old-time music, because everyone plays the melody together, and it's a collective lifting up of the tune, you know? And it's not like, look at me, look at me. It's it's more just, let's all play this together and create this cool, hypnotic, you know, neat feel. And, every you know, they'll play the same tune for a long time, and everybody's just into it. Now, bluegrass, although inspired from old-time music because of the fiddle and fiddle tunes, uh, it has more of a jazz band kind of setup where you'll pass it around. Everybody will take different breaks. Mm-hmm. And so Bill Monroe is highly competitive. And so he wouldn't want anybody to get, you know, more applause. And so it, it kind of had this one-upsmanship, mm. which I think is baked in the music. You yeah. know, it's like everyone wants to play hotter than the next guy. Or if he played a bunch of fast notes and she's going to want to play a bunch of fast, you know, it's mm. like, there's sort of that kind of thing built in, you know, that, that sense of competition, right? you know, which is interesting. It makes for a thing, you know, how was, um,
0: just how was John as a person? Like what was, what was, what was it like hanging around him and, and sort of all the people in that musical universe?
2: Um, John was great. I mean, we got to, got to be really tight. I mean, he, like I said he was maniacal about playing music. So, you know, if you were down to play music all day long, it's just like you could definitely be friends. Like if I didn't play music, you know, I mean I don't that relationship wouldn't have wouldn't have happened, you know, but because we had that through line um you know, he wanted to share with me all of the knowledge that he had attained over the years and uh he had an amazing library in his house that was full of you know every l p from any kind of bluegrass or hillbilly or or fiddle music you know videos you know hundreds and hundreds of hours of tapes books he um in fact, I've got some crates those crates over there he had his whole office lined with those record crates, <laughs> and his daughter gave me those record crates and um but that's where he kept all his stuff. And I mean, he had just the coolest library of every fiddle book that ever came out. And so he was really uh, eager to share what he had. He was really giving, you know, he would order me fiddle books on the, this is the beginning of the internet, essentially being, this is in 97. And so, we, uh, you know, he got on com and, you know, got me like the Bayard collection of Fiddle tunes, which is where he got the Squirrel Hunters from, mm-hmm. is that book, the Samuel Bayard B A Y A R D, and got me the Christensen fiddle book R P Christensen, all these Missouri fiddle tunes, and and uh, he had a love for Ed Haley, uh, Kentucky fiddle player, Blind Ed Haley, and John sort of you know rediscovered uh, Haley's fiddling, and then went deep deep dive into Ed Haley, and I mean when I say deep dive like they actually got an uh they exhumed a grave like <laughs> i mean he didn't get out there with a shovel and dig Rich. him up or anything but he probably would have if he could have but it had to do with a feud that happened with um with uh, some of Haley's people and um well at any rate i'm not exactly sure of the exhumation but there definitely was a body exhumed uh <laughs> through the national geographic and john hartford in their research into Ed Haley's life. And, and it's tie-in to the Hatfields McCoys. <laughs> ah, man. I mean. But um, so he studied everything Ed Haley and was writing a book at the time with his co-author, Brandon Kirk. And John wanted me to... I can read and write music, so as could John, but he wanted me to do the transcription. So I would listen to the Ed Haley transcriptions and I would make musical notation of what Ed was playing. And then John had Ed's old fiddle at the house and so I'd bring over about three transcriptions at a time after I'd finished them and uh he'd set me at one end of this long dining room table up there on the river in Madison and give me Ed Haley's fiddle and then he'd sit at the other end and I'd play through these Haley transcriptions on Ed's fiddle you know playing Ed's notes as close as I could get to what how Ed played his tunes you know yeah um so you know we had this really cool thing that we shared is this music and and uh and I was you know young you know young man at the time, twenty twenty-three, I guess, twenty-four, around that age, and uh and I was green as all get out, you know. I can't you know, I was still basically a classical musician that knew some fiddle stuff. So John helped widen my my musical knowledge of who to listen to and like I learned a bunch hanging out with him. Cause I mean, he had known or experienced it all, you know? So, but he was really sharing and really, really cool guy and lots of fun and like so unbelievably creative. It was like, it was like hanging out with a, I mean, it's just energetically creative. <laughs> it's like at all times, there was something coming out of him, be it a joke, a song, a turn of phrase, a notes, uh, you know, a little musical idea, a fully-fledged tune, a fully-fledged song, you know, just anything. He was always working on something. He was always bouncing jokes off of people, basically working on a stage act. Yeah. You know, you would tell the same joke, you know, to as many people as he could, you know, to kind of hone in on his uh, stage act. And <laughs> But uh, he was a marvel to be around, and he was sick. He was really sick at the time. You know, he was battling cancer. He had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But despite his failing health, it's like he would, you know, it slowed him down, but it he still kept going. You know, it's I used to, in fact, today I was driving in town and I drove past the Sarah Cannon Cancer Center and I used to, I would take John to go get chemo sometimes, uh, drive him in his Cadillac and uh, go hang out with him while he got his treatment, you know. Um, and I just, in fact, I just thought of that this morning. I just drove past it and I was like, oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Taking them in there, so it was uh, so inspirational. And you know, he told me he gave me songwriting tips. It's like things that he did to to spark creativity. Like he would <clears throat> he would take somebody's CD, um, he would look at the titles, maybe listen through it, and then look at the titles again after he had just taken a brief listen through, and then write new songs on what he thought the song sounded like <laughs> of just a brief listen sure. you know so it would become something completely different mm. but it was just a way of sparking creativity and he told me about um all these little turns of phrase and little collections little lines he called it his wood pile and so he'd create a wood pile of stuff um and then he'd take little bits out and he'd put them together and and then he would constantly kind of said you know you got to write all the time you know he had journals that he kept um spiral bound journals and he uh you'd write in them every day you know not like my thoughts you know dear diary but it was like writing tunes in it you know and it was it very much paralleled whatever it was going on in his life you know and he would always put where he was at the time if he was on the road he'd put you know, Schenectady, New York, or whatever. If he is home, he'd put mile two hundred point eight because that was the John Hartford mileage marker on the Cumberland River. Mm. John was a riverboat pilot. For the people that don't know, he was also a licensed riverboat pilot. So that was another person of John Hartford. You know, we were talking about the pop star, the the hippie. Then he was also this riverboat guy. Mm-hmm. You know, which is so he piloted the General Jackson here in town. I mean, not as a living, but. He had his commercial pilot's license. He would pilot the Julie Bell Swain. Um, He grew up working on boats as a kid. So, you know, he turned into this Mark Twain kind of figure. You know, the bowler hat, you know, the banjo, the dancing on the board, uh, you know, the fiddle. So he's like this Renaissance man. And so uh, he had many different phases, but just a wonderful person and... and and still continues to this day to be my number one, like, inspiration of, like, of creativity and not ever being held back by any kind of convention. While honoring it and knowing about it, it's just, like, there are no rules. Go ahead and do your own thing. It's, like, by evidence of his number one song, Gentleman on My Mind, doesn't even have a chorus. Yeah. You know? It's, like, oh, okay. It's written on the banjo and it doesn't even have a chorus. So, it's, yeah. like, there go the rules right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean... That's right. Yeah,
2: <laughs> bold move. I know. Yeah, it's just like, and then it just sold. You know, he made millions of dollars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, just, he was set. I mean, you know, as a young man to make that much, he's like, he was set. He could do whatever he wanted to, which hmm. was like a, a unique and uh, very interesting way to live your life. So he lived in this beautiful house. Uh, this cool, it looked like an old riverboat. You know, his house did this big yellow house up in Madison. It still stands. It's up there in Falls Avenue. Um, so, and he could do exactly as he pleased, you know, if he wanted to play the fiddle all day long and then we'd jump into Cadillac and go down to the China star and eat, <laughs> and eat Chinese food or, or go eat, you know, Japanese food or whatever. We'd do that. And yeah, so it was fun to kind of live in his, live in his world, you know.
0: So that for you is, his, is, is the, the legacy takeaway, it sounds like that, yeah that, you know, to not, to not adhere to convention and to to just go out and do it
2: yeah right i mean and with with complete like both feet in you know complete passion total you know total heart in it you know no fear just kind of just do exactly as you please i mean he had he had that luxury but i mean that's what he did before he made lots of money so you know he's still that bubbling creative kind of person just happened to pay off for him and so you know which is great if anybody deserves a big gob of money he did you know <laughs> it's like it's great
0: did, what was the um uh what was the dynamic like i mean it's in, like th- this is, this is one of the most interesting things about nashville to me right is that that you can be in a room um you know, Los Angeles is a little bit like this, but it has like a little more stink on it. Um, the, uh, you can be, you can, yeah. and I love LA. It's my favorite city, but it's still, it, that's true. It's weird in ways, mm-hmm. but um you can be in a room full of genius. I mean, you can be in a room full of geniuses that you're just casually in or people who've, who've reached very specific and seemingly out of reach levels of accomplishment or, you know, um, and, and just, that's just how it is. You're all there sort of getting separate. Um What is it like? What was it like, to be a kid, I mean, essentially a kid, yeah. you know, (laughs) just be in proximity to, to, to these people who not just have, are making things that you admire, but have also made it in very specific ways. And, and what was that dynamic like?
2: I mean, it was a dream come true. I mean, literally a dream come true. It's just like, cause everyone would, you know, through John, I met everybody that I was just like, they just existed on LPs, you know, they're just pictures on LPs and CDs for me. Um, and then they turned into real people, you know, and that was, that was because of John, because these people would all come over and hang out with him. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd have big jam sessions and there'd sit David Grisman. It's like, holy, you know, Earl Scruggs. <laughs> and, you know, John took me over to Earl's house a couple of times, you know, and, and to, it's like to sit in, you know, proximity to you and me with Earl, Earl Scruggs, you know, <laughs> so it's like, as he... Like, it was mind blowing you know and i was naive i mean or just i was aware of what was happening how special it was mm. um but it was uh, it was mind blowing you know yeah. and it was i was really lucky to to be able to be here at that time i am super thankful that, that i was able to get that uh infusion of of those of those cats you know those genius cats that that were that were here and doing their thing from the from the onset or, you know, at least from the fifties. Yeah.
0: And you, and just, I just want to make sure we touch on this before we, before we wrap up But um, you, uh, were involved in this book last year. You helped create this book, created this book. Mm -hmm. Walk us through the book. Well, yeah,
2: yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Well, it's called the John, uh, John Hartford's mammoth collection of fiddle tunes. And the title itself is a, uh, homage to, there's a book called Ryan's mammoth collection, which was first called, Cole's Mammoth Collection. <laughs> I'm backing way up here, but uh, it was like kind of the first and most popular um, collection of fiddle tunes. Hmm. So Ryan's Mammoth Collection, also called A Thousand Fiddle Tunes. Three different titles. <laughs> you can call, the old timers <laughs> called it Cole's. Sure. Like Norman Blake still calls it Cole's, <laughs> you know? Uh, Ryan's or A Thousand Fiddle Tunes. So that's the one that, that everyone kind of went to to learn tunes. Um, so John had... These journals that I had mentioned, he'd written them in every day. There were 68 of these journals that were spiral-bound notebooks, uh, spanning. The first one was in 1984, and the last is in 1999. <laughs> Before he got, it was really interesting to see. It's like his writing got super, super light towards. You know, he had beautiful calligraphy. All the titles would be in this, and the whole book is in his calligraphy. It's not typeset. It's all just literally just you know high res scans and it's put together, and it's his writing and his drawings. He was a commercially trained artist mm-hmm. and a great great artist. His pictures, so it's it's really a peek into the guy's head. So I went through all sixty eight volumes, you know, which amounted to, Lord, I don't know, you know, two thousand fiddle tunes. Let's just say. Yeah. And so I went through every one and played them, made a little work tape of each one of them. And then I'd listen back and sort of figure out you know, which, ones, which ones you liked. And um, John, he actually, I think he sort of was priming me for this because unbeknownst to both of us, maybe, but he showed me his library system. Uh, he always joked that he was a frustrated librarian, so <laughs> he would say, "Okay, well, I'd write a tune and then uh, I put a number by it, uh, and that's B fifty four. So that means, P, you know, you go in this file cabinet over there and book book B book fifty four, and then you go there and it's a page some other. And then he'll have a, a three by five card in his stash of three by five card, you know, file folders. So he sh- showed me his filing system, you know, and how he how he put these things through and organized them. And uh, so that was obviously when he was still alive. But um, so Katie Hartford, uh, his daughter, um, she has all this stuff from his office. So she wanted, she's been an unbelievable steward of John's legacy. Uh, Check out johnhartford.com. You know, they have, they have a lot of stuff for sale, a lot of you know, st- all the records, um, t shirts, stickers and you name it. Um but she's the one that spearheaded the thing. And, you know, they're the ones that wanted to publish it and everything like that. So they brought me on to, you know, go through and, and uh go through and cull through the book and pick out help pick out the good ones. So I went through and picked it out and then I would bring them to uh, Katie and and the other collaborator on it was Greg rich from the middle Tennessee State University Center for popular music uh, he did the uh, he did some writing for it and uh, did the intro and and we all worked together to finalize the 176 tunes that it came down to um, not only for the tunes quality but also the the tunes that kind of helped to go with the narrative of the story because it's it's not just a book of fiddle tunes like just it's a it's a coffee table book, it's a it's a way to get to know the man. Like even if you don't read a lick of music, it's like it's still an enjoyable thing if you're a John Hartford fan just to see it's like you open up a book and you see his writing. Mm. So it's like that thing that's a really special thing. It's like crawling around in a guy's head. Yeah,
0: and it's 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 beautiful too. It's I mean the illustrations are are gorgeous. Yeah. The layout is really good. It doesn't feel like you're it's not like a textbook by any means. Mm. It's um it's as as visually compelling as it as it is narratively
2: yeah um but Katie you know deserves all the credit for uh getting it all together you know and and making sure everything happened you know she was the organizer behind the whole deal, and uh you know and they put their money in put their money where their mouth is, you know it's like they they printed all these books and and uh they're i think it's gaining popularity, people are yeah. really. People are really digging it. So go check out JohnHartford.com for the Hartford's Mammoth Collection of Fiddle Tunes. Um, Hartford's. John Hartford's Mammoth <laughs> Collection of Fiddle no, Tunes. No, yeah. I'm saying
0: it's right, at some point in its popularity, right, it'll just become... Oh,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, like Coles or... Yeah. Uh, Hartford's. Oh, yeah, you got Hartford's. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. I hope exactly. so. That'd be
0: nice. I'm talking to her this afternoon. <laughs> you, with, you, to Katie. Oh, you are? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Oh yeah. great. Yeah, right. I
0: think the John Hartford episode has become two episodes. <laughs> okay, well, that's good he deserves it.
2: Uh Katie's Katie's awesome. Yeah, she's uh I've really enjoyed getting to know to know her through this process and and uh you know, getting to know it was her way of getting to know her dad because mm. I mean they were uh you know, they parents divorced and so John was doing his thing out, out. so it's like he wasn't around too much as a father. Uh so, you know, and I'm not telling any telling anything probably that she wouldn't, and if I am, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it's like the fact is is like you know that he was kind of an absentee, yeah, um, father in that regard, which is you know, sometimes when people are blessed with so much of one thing. It's like inevitably something else has to give, you know? Totally.
0: Well, and I think also like my, my dad was born in 31. My father was older than, mm-hmm. than Hartford was. And uh, I sort of think to get to know men
2: who were born at that time, you sort of have to research them after they die. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But, you know. but I mean, it's been really cool because I've been hanging out, you know, been knowing Katie. I've just gotten to know her after John's passing. I'd met her twice when John was still alive. Um, but it was her way of of getting to know her dad, you mm. know, and it was really special. And actually, a really special moment came um, when uh, uh, I was looking through the book, and um, she hadn't ever found this tune, but I found one called Katie's Come to Visit, hmm. and I showed it to her, and that just mean, meant the world to her, because it, it was like, oh, wow, you know, it's just like, I resonated to dad. You know, and that really, and it's it's in the book. It's it's a really cool tune, and and but uh, but to show Katie this was really was really special. You know, because John was just so in his own world. I mean, yeah. you know, it's like you could come in this world if you did what he wanted, or not what he wanted necessarily, but what he enjoyed. If you shared your his interest and you were in his world, and Katie didn't, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, so. There wasn't a, a point of connection, you know, um, but for her to to see that tune and to hear that tune and to know that her dad was thinking of her, I think was was really special. It was really the special moment for for that to happen. So I was glad she was able to to get that, you know, get some some after the fact, you know, acknowledgement. Yeah. I think was was special for her and.
0: Um. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Man, it's it. my
2: pleasure. We're <laughs> glad you came out here to, to the studio and are hanging out. And this is uh, like I literally moved all my furniture in here, you know, day before yesterday. <laughs> so this is the first professional thing I've done in this room. So to do it talking about a special guy like John and and I think means a lot to me. So was, I think it's a good blessing for the for the space. Excellent. Thanks so much, Matt. All right, you're welcome. <laughs>
0: All right, you made it. That's it. Uh, That's it for the first episode of Nashville Demystified. Special thanks to Carolyn Kendrick for talking with us about her warm feelings for Hartford. And of course to Matt Combs. Thanks to Jesse LaFontaine, who's mixing this episode. And once again, I am Alex Steed. Join us next week for the second part of our John Hartford Dive where we learned a bit about Hartford, the man and pioneer of Newgrass, grass. Uh, this time around, next week, we learn a bit about him from the perspective of Katie Hartford Hogue, his daughter, who really got to know him later in his life and after his passing through, sorting through his archive. It was a touching conversation. I hope you'll check it out. And remember to subscribe, rate, review, like, follow, do all the social media things. Tell me what I have right. Tell me what I have wrong. Tell me what you want to see or hear more of in the future. And uh, that's it, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk soon.